Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Who can we turn to when a case goes cold? Statistically, nearly half of all murders in America go unsolved. When leads dry up, there's a lack of evidence, or persons of interest aren't talking, there's a sense of hopelessness. Police have limitations. They don't have the means or manpower to work an unsolved case day in and day out forever. So who can we turn to when all other resources are depleted? Well, sometimes, like in the case we're talking about today, we can turn to the supernatural for answers. Today's story is unlike anything you may have ever heard, and unlike any other story I've covered on the podcast. A case where a deceased victim contacted a private investigator from beyond the grave to help solve his own murder. An incredibly suspicious death and a visit from a ghost, all wrapped into one truly mystifying story. A case that somehow remains unsolved to this day. This is Avery After Dark, and I am your host, Avery Ross. I am so happy that you're here with me today. Quick little reminder, if you're enjoying Avery After Dark, leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps so, so much, so thank you all. And if you want all these episodes early and ad-free, join the Patreon. I'm linking that in the show notes. Just three bucks a month, that's it. Thank you to all my lovely Patreon members. All right, you all know I like to get right into it. This is the supernatural case of David Chase. This story starts in Evergreen, Colorado. Evergreen is a picturesque mountain town located in Jefferson County, Colorado. It's regarded as one of the best places to live in the state. It's very close to Denver with lots of restaurants and beautiful parks. In 1995, David Thomas Chase, 42, and his wife, Judy Amber Chase, had just moved to Evergreen a year and a half prior. David Chase was born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but he and Judy wanted a fresh start in a new place to call home. It was no question. The beauty and adventures of Colorado were gonna be the perfect fit for the Chases. David himself was an avid outdoorsman, and the couple thought Evergreen would be a great place to start a new chapter of their lives. From all accounts, David and his wife Judy seemed to be a very in-love, closely connected couple. One extra notable addition to their life was at the time of this case, David and Judy were foster parents to two young children named Trisha and Darius. David and Judy loved the kids and were looking forward to adopting them in the near future. It can take quite a while to finalize adoption, but in the meantime, the Chases were building their life and family in Evergreen and were really looking forward to the future. David worked as a local craftsman and a cabinet maker, and he would also work other freelance jobs around town when they popped up. The day of June 6, 1995, started out like any other for the Chases. David was scheduled with a freelance job that morning and was going to work alongside a local handyman in Evergreen, a man named Matt Horoski, 
who lived just down the road from the Chases. Matt Orosky, 34, was going to work alongside David on a routine roofing job at a local Elks club. So the two men were set to work that morning and then also later scheduled for some landscaping work. So who was Matt Orosky? According to Evergreen locals, Matt didn't have the best reputation in town. He was allegedly quite confrontational with competing businesses in the area. For example, he had no problem showing up at someone's home in an attempt to intimidate them into backing down from a job that he wanted. So that day, David and Matt reportedly finished the roofing job around noon and afterwards grabbed some lunch together. On the way home from that, they stopped at the bank as David had to deposit a check for $1,800. This check was an advance payment for an upcoming job so David went to deposit the check, and then the two men decided to grab some drinks at a local bar before heading home. Now, Judy Chase, David's wife, knew he was working that day and was going to be spending the evening with Matt and assumed her husband would be home later that evening. But as the hours rolled on, David never made it back home and didn't call either. This was highly unusual, so Judy immediately knew something was very wrong. David loved his home life, loved Judy, loved their young children. He never just didn't come home. And reminder, these were the days before people relied so much on cell phones. This is 1995, so when someone didn't make it home, you couldn't get on your phone and check their location, track them down. When you didn't know where someone was, you were just left wondering and worrying. And that's exactly what Judy Chase did all night. She sat in a rocking chair, worried sick waiting for her husband to come walking through their front door. But he never did. When it hit morning, Judy quickly hopped in the car and drove straight over to Matt's house. She knew they were together last night. He would know where her husband is. Judy gets to his house and asks him about David. What happened last night? Where is he? Matt tells her that he doesn't know where David is. He said that he left him at the bar last night playing pool. And when he left, everything was fine. Matt said David was acting normally all night and was even in good spirits. Nothing out of the ordinary. But that wasn't the whole story. A few hours later, Matt's girlfriend calls Judy and tells her about something odd that Matt said when he got home the night before. According to Judy, when Matt returned home last night, his girlfriend asked about their night out. She said that when she asked Matt about David, he claimed that David, quote, had a raft and was going swimming in the river. The river he's referring to is Bear Creek River. It runs along the bar where the men were last seen that evening. So David went for a swim in an icy river? To Judy, alarm bells are ringing. Judy said this was completely bewildering. Quote, My husband was a very experienced mountain climber and studied hypothermia. So the story is absolutely, completely impossible for me to believe. End quote. This river near the bar was snow-covered at the time, freezing, and David knew the risks of swimming around in a snow-fed river in the middle of the night. Judy knew her husband wouldn't jump into an icy stream for no reason. None of this made any sense. The story was not plausible. She believed that Matt was hiding something. After this, Judy went to the police and reported her husband missing, telling them where her husband was the night before, who he was with, and the bizarre and unlikely story that Matt shared. One of the men on duty that day was Sergeant Brian Scott of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department, and he immediately knew that he needed to speak with Matt. Matt immediately becomes a person of interest. So police question him and ask him about what happened that night. And Matt essentially tells police the exact same story as he told his girlfriend. 
He says that he and David spent most of the day drinking after their job was finished. A pitcher of beer at lunch, another beer at the Elks Club, and two more pitchers at the bars later that day. But Matt said after the last bar, the two actually unloaded some tree limbs from David's car and dropped them into Bear Creek River. Next, according to Matt, David allegedly decided to jump into the frigid cold river, telling Matt to pick him up in Morrison. He tells officers this was the last he ever saw of David floating away down the river. So police share these new tidbits of information with Judy and more alarm bells are going off for her. Another major red flag. See, Judy knew this wasn't true because her husband would never dump brush, tree limbs, any kind of lumber into the river. As I mentioned, David was an avid outdoorsman and was also very passionate about protecting and preserving the wilderness. Judy described her husband as fanatical with keeping the wilderness pristine. So dropping their lumber into the creek, this is not something David would have ever done. And again, she told police that her husband would never jump into a river in the dead of night. David Chase is still missing and Matt's story is not adding up. And this is where the case stood still day after day no news, and no sign of David. Search efforts were hindered because of high waters and heavy rains for over a month. There was nothing, not a trace of David, until six weeks later, when a caretaker of the Gates property along the Bear Creek River reported seeing a decomposing body in the creek among some low trees. This area was three miles downstream from where David was last reportedly seen at the bar. Authorities arrived and confirmed their suspicions. This was the body of David Chase. The autopsy report stated the cause of death was consistent with drowning. But it wasn't so simple as that, as the coroner also noted something very strange, stating that David's neck had been broken, his pants were missing, although his shoes were still on, and the evidence showed that his clothes had been ripped from his body. Even more alarming, there were these odd cuts all over his legs. Judy Chase looked at the autopsy report and immediately noticed there were quite a few inconsistencies. One being that David was not intoxicated at the time of his death. This does not match up with Matt's account of them drinking all day long. Beer after beer. Matt really emphasized this to police and alluded that David was intoxicated and therefore that's why he would go for a swim in the river. But that isn't what the autopsy reflects at all. David Chase wasn't drunk. Also, What happened to his clothes? Judy stated that her husband tucked his jeans tightly into his socks and shoes every day as a precaution for ticks and other issues in his line of work. So what happened to his pants? Were they cut off? It did not make sense that his shoes would still be on, but his jeans would have been torn off. Judy was incredibly suspicious and grew even more so when Matt's girlfriend again called her up and told her that she found $800 in cash in Matt's glove compartment. She had no idea where this unaccounted money came from. So as we can tell, it seems that Matt's own girlfriend is highly suspicious of him and feels the need to continue to alert Judy of anything strange she finds. That says a lot, doesn't it? Judy insisted to police that there was clearly foul play here. This wasn't an accidental drowning, something much more sinister happened to her husband. She demanded that this need further investigation, so police question Matt again. This time, they find out that Matt's story has changed. He now states that the two left the bar together. 
then drove down the road to dump the brush into the river. Matt then says that David didn't jump into the river willingly like he said. That actually, when the two were dumping the brush, David had an accident and fell in. So Matt's story has completely switched up now three times. First, he told Judy that when he left David that night, he was still playing pool at the bar. Then the story changed to David jumping into the river willingly to go for a swim after the bars and floating away. Now there's this alleged accident where David fell into the river as they were unloading brush. These ever-changing stories are throwing everyone off. And if the latter is true, why didn't Matt get help for David when he accidentally fell in? This area of the river was merely 50 feet from the town's fire station, and also yards from people meandering outside the bars. So if there was some kind of accident, Matt could have easily gotten help immediately as there were numerous people around. But he didn't. Not only did he not seek help, he seemed to just drive off and go home for the night, leaving his friend in the river. Judy also tells police about the $800 in cash in Matt's glove compartment in his car, stating that this could be evidence from her husband's death. And not just that, this could be motive. We know the day of his disappearance, David was depositing a check for nearly $2,000. Could there have been some kind of disagreement over money between David and Matt? And was that money found in Matt's car, stolen from David? Overall, Matt's inconsistent stories of that night don't make any sense. They don't add up. Police see this. Authorities are very suspicious of Matt for numerous reasons. But sadly for Judy, even though they had recovered David's body in such a suspicious state, police did not move forward with any charges against Matt Oroski. The case went cold. There was no justice for David, Judy, or their family. And Matt walked free. Police said they just didn't have the evidence to charge Matt with anything. Every day, the case grew colder, but in the unseen, there was someone who wanted justice. Someone wanted the truth to be revealed. David Chase himself. David's spirit was about to reach out from beyond the grave and try and help solve his very own murder. This case was about to go from a suspicious death into a full-blown paranormal investigation. A supernatural twist that no one saw coming. How? Enter Phil Harris a private investigator from Colorado. Phil had no relation to David or Judy Chase, didn't even know who David was, but he was about to get to know him quite well. On October 15, 1995, months after David's untimely death, Phil Harris had spent the evening at home with his wife. He'd fallen asleep for a couple hours on his easy chair when something unexpectedly bizarre happened. He was awakened to the sound of a disembodied male's voice this voice said, quote, My name is David Chase. I was murdered. I want you to investigate my murder. Go buy the Sunday paper. End quote. Phil sat up immediately, racking his brain around what he had just heard and experienced. He immediately went out, bought that Sunday paper, and found that article on David Chase's suspicious death. He started investigating into the details surrounding the case. Who was David Chase? What happened? And why was he reaching out to him for help? Phil eventually confided in his wife, Janet, telling her about what he had heard and told her that he knew he was chosen to help solve David's murder. He felt that David's spirit contacted him personally and for good reason. And he was going to do everything he could to help. 
According to Phil, David's spirit continued contacting him from beyond, providing Phil with more and more information that could crack his case wide open. And now a quick word from today's sponsors. You're back with Avery After Dark. David's messages came to Phil through his own voice, as well as a series of photos of what happened the night he was murdered. Receiving message after message, Phil Harris knew he needed to do something with this, so Phil picked up the phone and dialed someone who he felt needed to hear this, Judy Chase. Phil told her something along the lines of, I know this sounds crazy and beyond belief, but I believe your husband's ghost is contacting me from beyond. As you can guess, when Judy first got the call, she was obviously very skeptical, as anyone would be. And Phil knew this and came prepared. You see, David Chase had divulged private information to Phil that only he and Judy knew. Information that was not publicly written about in the papers or known to anyone else besides David and Judy. So Phil shared some of these messages with Judy, information that only the two of them would know. In turn, Judy said, quote, There were a lot of very personal details about my relationship with David that no one else knew, about our life together, our love for one another, pet names that David called me. He called me Honey Bunny and Shuggies, things like this. There's no way that Phil Harris could have known that, end quote. We all know when you're in a relationship, you just have those little inside jokes, names, those little details that no one else knows. And I would argue that these details would be even harder to obtain back in the 90s when there was no social media. You couldn't hop on and look at their Facebook account and see how they spoke to one another. In 1995, that would be a bit more difficult. So Phil and his claims were looking very legitimate. Some would say, well, maybe he just wanted in on the case. For one, it was not a high-profile case at all. It was locally known in Colorado, but that was about it, so there wasn't really a publicity angle to this. And two, to state the obvious, Phil worked as a private investigator, so if he wanted to, he could have just called up Judy and said, I work as a PI and would love to help out with your husband's case. Phil and Judy agreed that Phil would work on David Chase's case for merely one dollar until the case was solved. That right there, to me, says a lot about Phil's intentions. So, though at first Judy was skeptical, after conversations with Phil, his inside knowledge of private information, and seeing that he wasn't after any sort of payout, Judy really believed Phil. She believed that her husband's spirit was contacting him, adamant to solve his own murder. And over the coming days and months, Phil was contacted by David's spirit countless times, and David showed him through visions what happened the night he died. David Chase's spirit told Phil that Matt, alongside a younger accomplice, murdered him. Phil dutifully took a transcript of what David told him. What you are about to hear are the direct words from David Chase's spirit. David told him, quote, Before I deposited the check for $1,800, Matt talked me into cashing it and keeping the money in my pocket under the guise of possibly buying a decent truck from him. I had second thoughts about buying a truck from Matt, and I told him that as we were leaving the bar. Matt was furious with me at the time, but I didn't realize it. As soon as we got back to his truck, he started to tell me that I had promised him this money, and therefore it was his. Matt shoved me in the chest, I shoved him back, and he hit me in the face. 
I immediately hit him back and all of a sudden he started bleeding very hard from the nose. This made him extremely mad and he flew into me. I went down very near the edge of the water. In fact, we were up against the small retaining wall, fighting on the ground. We rolled around and tried to punch each other and I feel Matt got in a couple good punches. I only remember him hitting me in the back of the neck with a hard object. I don't know what he hit me with, but it broke my neck. The knife that was used to cut my clothing off belonged to the other person. You were right, Phil, about the cuts on my legs. This is where Matt cut my clothes off rather than take my boots off. He tied my clothes around the murder weapon. He told the kid to throw them out in the middle of the river as far as he could throw them. I'm not sure whether it was a hammer, crowbar, or even just like a gardening tool." End quote. David's spirit told Phil that both Matt and this younger man were involved and responsible for his murder. David's testimony proved to Judy that Matt's ever-changing stories from that night were nothing but lies. David Chase didn't go swimming in the river. His death was no accident. He was murdered. And David's spirit needed to come forward with the truth of what really happened to him that night. For almost everyone who hears this story, they believe this account to be much more probable than any of the other bogus stories that Matt gave police. This would also account for that money that Matt's girlfriend found in his glove compartment. Judy was beginning to feel like there was going to be movement in the case. With this newfound supernatural testimony, maybe Phil could lead them to answers. One year and one day after David Chase's death on June 7, 1996, Phil brought Judy to the reservoir where he believes the murder weapon and David's clothing were disposed of, pointing out exactly where David's spirit showed him it was dumped. And then, suddenly, tragedy struck again. One week later, Phil Harris died of a massive heart attack without being able to solve the case. Phil's family was heartbroken. This was so unexpected. Not only was Phil gone, but Judy's connection to her late husband, David, died along with Phil. Her supernaturally passionate and helpful ally, Phil, was now gone. So she alone went to police, giving them detail after detail of how her husband was murdered, giving them exact locations of where they can look for the murder weapon. But police didn't think much of Judy and her ghost story. Your husband's ghost contacted a PI to solve his own murder? They seemed to think it was just a crazy story. I couldn't find any information whether they even searched that reservoir, the reservoir that David Chase's spirit told Phil about, for the murder weapon either. Sergeant Scott said, quote, If we're going to develop a criminal case, we have to have something that we could present in court. That would be a prosecutable situation. In order to do that, you have to have evidence that you can put your hands on and witnesses that you can talk to. So the information that Phil Harris presented needs to be corroborated through another source, end quote. It often feels like people who do not believe in this sort of phenomenon will often just write off the entire story, not search into the leads provided, not even look into any of the claims. They just think the entire thing is bizarre or nuts and brush it off, which in David's case is tragic. All Judy could do at that point was wait. Wait for someone else to come forward with information, perhaps Matt's accomplice or someone who saw something, heard something, would come forward. But no one did. 
Throughout the years, no concrete evidence has ever been provided in David's murder. Police never connected Matt to the scene. Don Olin, a homicide investigator who was assigned to David Chase's case, believes that David Chase was murdered. Don even requested an arrest warrant for Matt Orosky, charging him with criminally negligent homicide. But the DA's office declined to prosecute Matt and stated that the investigation should continue. Another devastating blow for Judy Chase and David's family. To date, no charges have ever been filed and David Chase's murder remains unsolved. This case appeared on Unsolved Mysteries and although many believe Matt is guilty, he remains a free man and has declined to be interviewed. Sadly, in the years since, David's parents have both passed away. I also read that recently there's been a claim that there's a connection between David's death and the custody case of their foster children. In this report, David Chase's death was also allegedly tied to a trafficking organization. Phil and other private investigators had found this out after talking with witnesses. However, there is nothing to confirm these claims, and nothing else evidence-wise has been presented. I researched and looked all over to find anything on this, but it's obviously still an open investigation and Phil died before he could be interviewed. So this is just another huge question mark. How was David's death connected to their foster children? What does this mean? And what do investigators know? So again, another huge twist in this unsolved case. And now another quick word from today's sponsors. You're back with Avery After Dark. First of all, what are the chances that David's case could eventually be solved? A visit from a ghost used in court? Come on, what are the chances of that? Well, more likely than you'd believe. Historically, mediums have played important roles in identifying new evidence or confirming detectives are on the right track. In media coverage, paranormal involvement is usually glossed over. It really shouldn't be, though. Here are some examples of mediums using their abilities to help solve real cases. The 1987 case of New Orleans resident Andre Daigle. Andre disappeared after meeting a friend for dinner and a few rounds of pool. It turned into a night of drinking, but something happened that night, and Andre was never seen again. Similar to David Chase's case, all families were left with were questions. News of Andre's disappearance sent family into shock, and when his sister, Elise McGinley, got wind of what happened, she consulted with a psychic named Rosemarie Kerr. Elise met with Rosemarie and asked if she had any impressions on what happened to Andre, if he was still alive, what happened. Rosemarie immediately sensed that Andre was deceased. According to her testimony, she correctly identified where Andre's body would be found, a New Orleans swamp. So not only did Elise learn her brother had been murdered, she also had the exact location to find his body. With this information, police took it as a plausible lead and searched the swamp, and they made a major discovery. Just as Rosemarie said, they recovered Andre's body. This broke the case wide open and resulted in the conviction of two men who confessed to killing Andre for sport, no reason other than just sheer evil. Rosemarie Kerr was the first psychic to ever be placed on a witness stand in a murder trial. She herself passed away in 2015, but this case opened up a world of opportunity for other police departments, FBI, to utilize the help of mediums, the supernatural, in cold cases. 
Another great example. In 2005, Debbie Keys of Harding, New Jersey was going through the unimaginable. All three of her children had been abducted by their father. This was against a court order and Debbie had not seen, heard, or talked to her children in 13 months. She didn't know where they were or if they were safe. A mother's worst nightmare. In sheer desperation of finding her babies, Debbie brought the idea of seeking the help of a psychic to the detective working the case, Sergeant Lou Masterbone. Masterbone was very reluctant. He didn't know much about psychics and was really skeptical, but ultimately agreed for the sake of Debbie. Nancy Weber, the psychic brought onto the case, led investigators on a three-state chase that started in a small town in Texas. She pointed to the children being there. Police checked it out and found that the children had been there, but were moved merely days prior. Nancy also told Debbie that one of her daughters had been attacked by a dog, resulting in a scar on her mouth, but told Debbie, don't worry, you'll be reunited with your children soon. Nancy then pointed to a new address, Ramona, California. Police were gaining more trust with Nancy every day and found again that she was right. They spoke to a neighbor in California who claimed the children had been there, but had just left. Finally, Nancy pulled up a third and final address in Hawaii. Police zoned in on that address, and they got them. Debbie's three children were located alive and were reunited with their mom. And one more thing, Debbie's daughter had a large scar on her lip when they were reunited. She asked her what happened. Her daughter told her, a dog attack. Wow. Detective Masterbone said, quote, If it wasn't for Nancy Weber in this case, we would not have gotten the children back. Her insight, her help, we could not have done it without her, end quote. So these kinds of stories aren't reported on as much as they should be. Don't get me wrong, I understand police can't and do not have the time to go down the rabbit hole with every person who calls in and says they're a psychic. They can't afford that. And we know a lot of those people are not legitimate. But on the other hand, look at the cases that some have solved. Lives have been saved because some psychics and mediums' abilities. That begs the question, can we really afford not to lean into the supernatural in some of these cases? Circling back to David's case, the problem being that even if they brought charges against Matt Ornosky or were able to identify his accomplice, Phil Harris is gone and would not be around to testify about his visions in contact with David Chase's spirit. But that doesn't mean there isn't hope. Every cold case is just one piece of information away from being solved and justice served. And whether this information comes from someone living, psychic, or dead, we shouldn't discriminate. Judy Chase deserves justice, at the very least, for everything that she lost. Another question you may be asking, why David Chase's spirit chose to visit Phil? Out of everyone, why him? Well, to sum it up, there are quite a few police officers, FBI agents, who go on to become professional mediums and psychics. Through their years on the job, many find that over time, they have highly developed their psychic skills and mediumship, which they use in their work. For example, Keith Charles was a police officer in London, England for 32 years. His duties range from guarding prime ministers to members of the royal family at Buckingham Palace. He even walked with the late Queen Mother around her beautiful garden. In his years, he investigated all kinds of cases and crimes. 
Keith has also been a medium for 23 years and claims he has had direct contact with the deceased, victims of cases he worked. He wrote two books, one entitled Psychic Cop and the other Psychic Detective. Another great example is Riley G. Matthews Jr. He was an officer in the New York Police Department and U.S. federal government for 11 years and his highly developed supernatural abilities resulted in countless important arrests and convictions. After his retirement from the New York Police Department with a line-of-duty injury, he joined forces from 1990 to 1995 with police and government agencies around the world, using his supernatural abilities to help solve crimes. You may be asking, but how? Many use remote viewing. What is that? It falls under a sixth sense, and it's a technique to gather information on a remote or hidden subject without support of the senses. It's a branch of parapsychology and honestly, quite fascinating. So again, back to David Chase's case. It appears that through his years as a private investigator, Phil, like so many others in that field, picked up psychic abilities, which enabled him to receive that connection from David's spirit. Another reason? Many point to the fact that Phil was unknowingly close to death himself, and perhaps that opened up a veil to the other side, allowed him to become sensitive to David's spirit, the supernatural realm. Phil died just over a year after David, and perhaps with Phil's job as a private investigator, David chose him to come do, as he would have just the angle to help solve his case. In the end, Judy still has hope that David's case can be solved, and that someone, anyone, will come forward with information to corroborate Phil's claims. Many, myself included, wonder if David Chase's spirit will make another visit. For justice sake, many hope that he does. Maybe he'll provide new information leading to the long-awaited arrest of his killers. It's time for another Ask Aves, the segment where we get to some of the great questions, stories, and topics that you all have submitted. First up, we have a story that comes to us from Alice, and I want to share Alice's story with everyone because it is so spooky. She grew up in a haunted farmhouse. Let's hear her story. She writes, Hey Avery, my name is Alice, and I want to start off by saying that I love your podcast. I'm intrigued by the true crime stories, and my husband thinks it's weird, so it's good to know there's more people like me out there. I've had quite a few paranormal things happen to me over the years. I grew up in an extremely haunted farmhouse. The house was in a bare spot on a property that was surrounded by beans and corn. Inside the field were oil pumps, which my uncle owned. The house had a long gravel driveway and was about two miles from the nearest neighbor, so it was pretty quiet. From the start, the house just didn't seem right. There was something off. After living there for a few months, I had my first paranormal experience. My room was upstairs, but I didn't feel safe up there. I felt like something didn't want me up there, so I would sleep on the couch. One morning, I woke up and went to the bathroom. As I'm walking, I see a little boy running in front of me. My brother was about seven at the time, so I knew it wasn't him, but my mom used to babysit. Once I left the bathroom, I asked her if she was babysitting, and she told me she wasn't. I told her, well, I saw a little boy running in front of me. My mom asked me what the little boy looked like. I told her, he's wearing a white shirt, red jumper with red and white shoes. He was carrying a sippy cup too. She just looked at me with a strange expression and told me to follow her. 
I go into her bedroom and she gets a photo album from the closet. She flips through the pages and then stops at a picture. She asks, was this him? I looked at the picture and it was the same child I had seen. The outfit was even the same. I asked her, who is this? She flipped the page and showed me a newspaper clipping. Four children dead in a house fire. She tells me, that's your cousin who died in a house fire four years before you were born. Many other things happened in that house. I would get pulled off the couch. Three of my dogs went missing, which was odd because it was hard to find our house. I had another dog that went completely bonkers. The house was torn down about a year after we moved and it was the best thing that could have happened. Thank you for all that you do, Alice. Alice, thank you so much for sharing your story. Now that is one haunted house. It's very tragic to hear about your lost family members in that fire and wow, you seeing your cousin's spirit matching the photo completely, wow. It's also interesting that Alice touched on the sense of not feeling wanted by a home. That I don't know why, but I feel like something or someone doesn't want me here. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've stepped into a building, a home, an office, a store, and just felt, ooh, I gotta get out of here. The energy is tangible in some places and is such a chilling feeling. Next up, we have Esther. She writes, Hey Avery, I have a scary story. My aunt passed away in 2012. At the time, I was sharing a bedroom with my sister, who people in our family thought was her doppelganger. And shortly after my aunt passed, I saw a light shining on our bedroom door. My bed was directly in front of the door and my sister didn't see it because she was asleep. I think I was visited by our aunt. I love your TikTok and keep doing what you do for the paranormal true crime community. Thanks so much for writing in, Esther. I am so sorry for your loss. And yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Supernatural experiences can look a million different ways. Spirits, angels, loved ones will find unique and special ways to show us that they're around. And it was really wild. I shared my story of seeing that golden bright light in my bedroom during Ask Aves last week. And right after I saw that, I read Esther's message and saw her story, which I was amazed. The stories sound so similar. I believe stories like this show that our lost loved ones are still around us all the time. And I am so glad that I am reaching a lot of you paranormal lovers out there. Please make sure to send me your chilling stories, questions, anything else you'd like to discuss on Ask Aves. You can message me directly to the email provided in the show notes. I love hearing from you all. Until next episode, this is Avery After Dark.